Welcome to GRE Snacks, snackable episodes about the GRE exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable GRE course that includes everything you need to ace your GRE exam. A full textbook, videos on key topics, tons of GRE questions backed by our memory-enhancing algorithm, a built-in study planner and essay grader, and full-length practice exams. You can try it out for free at achievable.me, and if you like it, the podcast will get you 10% off at checkout. Now, let's get started. So today I've got Stephen Friedfeld from Accept You back on the line with us. And Stephen, I'm excited to have you back. I'd love if you could introduce yourself for people who haven't talked to you before. Sure. Thanks, Tyler. I appreciate your having me back. Um, my undergraduate uh, admissions experience was at Cornell University for four years. I was in the College of Arts and Sciences um, as an associate dean of admissions and academic advising. And then I spent six years in graduate admissions at Princeton University. I was the associate dean of graduate admissions and graduate affairs in the School of Engineering and Applied Science. I then was an independent admissions consultant for four years before co-founding Accept You in 2010. And we are comprised entirely of undergraduate and graduate former admissions officers who work one-on-one virtually with high school students applying to college or university students applying to graduate school. And to date, we've worked with about 7,000 students over our 13 years, helping them achieve their goals. Fantastic. Yeah, and so in that mix is quite a few graduate students, right? So today we're going to be talking about graduate yeah. school admissions tips. And really, the the thing that makes graduate school different uh, from undergrad, which we were talking about in our prep, um, is that there's a pretty big difference in the admissions process between, say, trying to get a master's versus trying to get an MBA versus trying to go to law school versus trying to get yeah. a PhD, right? So... I um I would love if you'd kind of where do you want to start? Maybe we start with like a standard master's program. Um yeah. and then would love to kind of talk through some tips for admission for each of these programs. Sure. And and that is part of the problem is that there's not a standard master's program. So we work with students um when we're working with university students, college students looking to go to graduate school. Admittedly, most of our students, our clients are in their junior or senior year of college. It's, um, it's not common to have students in their freshman or sophomore year of college thinking about graduate school, but I want them to. I want them to start thinking and planning about what their next step after college might look like. But by the time they're juniors, they will have declared a major, or if they're seniors, they'll be uh, knee deep in their majors. And indeed, the master's programs are very different from those graduate professional programs that you just mentioned. If you wanted a master's, you can look at it several ways. Is it a master of arts, a master of science? Um, Is it a master of science in a particular field, like a master of science in journalism? Is it a master's of public health? So there are so many, I mean, it could be, there probably are a hundred different master's degrees out there. And some of them are more um, coursework only. Some of them are very professionally oriented. Some of them are academically oriented. And so we want students to think about what their next step might look like. Are they using this master's degree as a stepping stone before going out into the workplace? Are they using it as a stepping stone before they perhaps go further with a PhD or some additional um, graduate program? 
can they become a practicing XYZ after they get a master's degree, for example, a master of architecture? Uh, is that necessary for a student to then become a practicing architect? Does a student need a master of science in, science in journalism before becoming a journalist? So we have these sorts of philosophical questions with our students um, all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, but how do those, I mean, I understand the philosophical questions, um, <laughs> but then how do those affect the admissions process? Sure. So um, if a student is going for a master's degree in, let's say an academic subject, let's just choose chemistry or art history, uh, just as some examples, there aren't actually a lot of master of science degrees in chemistry that are out there. They exist but most of the graduate programs in these academic fields are going to be PhD only. And students perhaps earn a master of science degree on their way towards the PhD. But at a lot of universities, you cannot apply for a terminal master of science in chemistry or in my other example, art history. So the students really need to think about if their terminal degree is a master's degree, does the university even offer that, the universities of interest, do they even offer that program as a terminal degree? Um, it, it's really important from the admissions perspective that a student have a very strong GPA in the major that is geared towards the, the graduate program. If you have uh, excellent marks in your chemistry and math and physics courses and you wanna get a master's or PhD in the sciences, you're going to fare very well, even if you didn't do quite as well in your humanities and social sciences undergraduate coursework. Of course, the universities that are highly ranked and highly competitive probably want you to have an overall fantastic GPA, but they'll be primarily paying attention to your coursework in your mm -hmm. major or related courses. So, um, you know, there are some students who maybe have an overall GPA of let's say 3.2 and they're thinking, well, it's just under a B plus average and, and I don't you know, feel mm -hmm. that I'll have, be competitive in the graduate process. But if we look more closely at their, at their transcript and it turns out it's a 3.5 or higher in, their, in the sciences and they want the sciences, they actually have much better prospects than they initially thought. So sometimes it's a matter of parsing out what courses they took um, and, and how well they've they've done in the relevant coursework. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think also, I mean, nowadays master's programs are particularly test optional compared to the other ones. I think like, you know, for MBA and other things, a lot of times you're still taking the GRE or the GMAT. Um, but it really does then come down to like your coursework the most. But are there other things if you're applying to a master's program, yeah. say in biology or whatever, besides getting good grades in your biology classes, like are there other things that you can do, whether that's clubs or organizations or projects? Yeah. Or, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Happy. I'm happy to address that. So with regard to clubs and organizations, it's not, it's not the same game as when a student is a high schooler looking to go to undergraduate uh, institutions. So we want students to probably get involved in about, um, two or three, or at most four activities over their four years of, of college. And even if they really didn't have much of an extracurricular profile, that's probably fine too. It's much more of an academically focused graduate admissions process. 
Um, I mm. like when I like when undergraduates get involved in clubs or organizations that are related to their major. So you mentioned biology. I'd love for students to be in the undergraduate biology biology society, or maybe there's an honor society for bio, or maybe there's a uh, bio research project um, that a student can undertake. Um, but you know, the extracurriculars are not really quote necessary. The um, letters of recommendation are actually much more important at the graduate level than they were for getting into undergraduate. That's a huge myth that the letters of recommendation matter that much for getting into college, but in mm -hmm. fact, they, they matter so much to get into graduate school. So my best advice that I think I can give students, aside from doing very well in their coursework, is to get to know professors. I always say to students, mm. if you even, you know, your goal maybe should be to get to know very well one professor per, per quarter or per semester, depending on your, your university. Um, I don't know that the students necessarily push themselves to try and get to know that many professors over their four years of, of undergrad. But if they push themselves to get to know two or three, they'll be doing quite well because all graduate programs that require letters of recommendation, it's typically two at most three letters. Um, you know, the students all have the opportunity to go to office hours with every class they take, every professor. And honestly, most students don't take advantage of that. They think that they only need to go to office hours if they're doing poorly in the class or they don't understand the class material, or they might not even go to the office hours. They might just talk to the, the graduate student teaching assistant if there is one. Um, I tell students all the time that going to office hours is not just to understand better the material in the class, it's to introduce yourself to the professor, to get to know him or her, to establish some sort of relationship, to ask questions about the field of study, about graduate school, about graduate programs. I promise the students that the professors would be very happy to have students walk into their office and not be complaining about their latest quiz grade, but instead to be asking questions about you know, what, what should my future look like in this field of study? They'll be, they can become great mentors, mm -hmm. but students don't typically take advantage. The ones who do really succeed. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a very good tip in general. Um, I, I mean, when I was an undergrad, I didn't do any of that stuff. Right. And I think that it probably would have served me quite well to try, <laughs> but you don't, often yeah. don't think about it till it's a little too late. Yeah, I actually decided very late in undergrad, uh, towards the end of my junior year, it suddenly hit me that maybe I should go for a PhD. I did end up uh, attaining a PhD, um, but I, I thought of it too late. And so only in senior year did I take on a research project with a faculty member. Uh, I believe it was actually in my, my final semester, so it wasn't even really a part of my graduate school applications. Um, I went to my favorite professors in senior year. So to me, that's later than I would recommend students doing so. And it worked out mm -hmm. fine. But again, this was 30 years or so ago, but 25 years ago. But the reality is, um, you know, these days the, the students can and should be more savvy. They really should be more mm -hmm. proactive. And I do remember talking when I was a, an undergrad just coincidentally, I was talking to my teaching assistants a lot, became friendly with them whenever I had smaller sections or laboratories and so forth. 
And I did actually inadvertently use them as mentors. I found out a lot about graduate school, graduate school funding, mm -hmm. masters versus PhDs. I mean, students who are attending the research universities who have PhD students use them as a reference. If you're attending a small liberal arts and sciences college, um, you know, they always say one of the advantages is uh, you don't have PhDs teaching you, you, PhD students teaching you, you only have professors. But I think there's an advantage sometimes to having a PhD student teach you in some sections because they're closer in age. They can give really good, friendly advice that's not, quote, intimidating to the, to the undergrad. Yeah, and they usually are kind of more excited to spend time with you going over specific problems and things like that, right? Because they are they haven't been beaten down by years of that like the professors have. <laughs> they haven't been beaten down. I think they're flattered that they can be helpful and mentors. And, and if they want to become professors themselves, it's honestly the beginning of their experience in helping younger students grow in their field and learn about what the next steps are. So yeah, I always think that, that that's a, another tip that I provide or I offer to students, undergraduates, is, is indeed talk to your um, major advisor, assuming you were assigned one. Don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. Talk to your, or get to know your professors in office hours. And like I said, talk to your PhD students. Um, one other piece of advice regarding letters of recommendation and professors, um, the professors want their students to succeed. You know, a lot of undergrads might think, am I going to get a good letter of recommendation from this professor? Does she or he know me well enough? Um, yeah, they might be intimidated by professors, but uh, professors want students from their institution to have good results, to have great results, to, to um, move on. Um, successfully in their next steps. And so I think one smart um, move when asking a professor for a letter of recommendation is to A, give them enough time to write such a letter, but B, ask it in this way. Will you be willing to write me a positive letter of recommendation? Just add that adjective. And, uh, and I think it can make a difference. And the professor would be tactful and honest. Um, if the professor doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily think so, the prof might say something like, I think there might be other professors who maybe know you better. So I'd be happy to write you a letter, but it might make sense to chat with some others first. If you get that sort of, you know, reaction, it's almost, you know, you've been rebuffed. <laughs> and That's so their perhaps, way of saying no while being polite, right? It's a polite way of saying no. Yeah. But I mean, it's something that these are undergraduates who are learning their way in the world. And I think that that's advice that they, they can really use. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, yeah, I think that's, um, those are some good tips. Anything else on masters before we move on to MBAs or uh, <laughs> things like that? Yeah. I mean, I think that students need to do some homework to figure out, is it a coursework only master's degree or is there a research project involved or is there a research uh, thesis where you need to um, defend the, um, the the master's degree? And, and they're different. Coursework only. Well, you know when the start date is and you know when the stop stop date is. You know when you graduate because there's you know X number of courses required to graduate. It also is going to be a, an expensive uh, program, most likely. Those types of programs, the coursework only, typically don't have any or much financial aid or funding. If they do have financial aid, they'll be in the, term, in the form of loans that need to be repaid. Typically, there's not grants available. 
Um, but some advantages are you, um, you know, can perhaps be in and out. <laughs> With, when it's a research master's degree, then you might not know the stop date because sometimes research takes longer than expected. So if it's a research master's degree, it might be one year of coursework, then a summer of maybe getting involved in research. And then your second year, you're continuing with that research and still doing some courses. They might require you to be a teaching assistant for a class. Um, hopefully by the end of that second year, if it's a, expected to be a two-year program, it could you could be done. But I knew someone who took almost four years to do a two-year master, what would have been a two-year master's program because her research was just very sloppy and unsuccessful. And so, um, you know, that is something else to know before you start is coursework versus research versus TA expectations versus funding. I think that's something else. Um, many times a master's program, especially at a highly selective or well-endowed institution, we'll say, sometimes those programs, the master's programs could be funded by the institution. So if it's a research uh, based master's degree. The reason it could be funded is because you're doing research for the university. That research that you create becomes proprietary new knowledge um, for the university. And so it's almost like a job in that you're an employee of sorts of the university doing research uh, and or a teaching assistant um, doing teaching. And so those programs typically are fully funded with regard to tuition. They might have a living stipend. That's very different from PhDs, which I imagine we'll chat about in a few minutes. But but some research, mm -hmm. some master's degrees, if they're research oriented, can be funded, which is a really smart way to uh, to continue your education. Well, right, because I mean, especially if you took out student loans for undergrad, adding grad mm -hmm. student loans on top of it can make that really onerous. Because it usually kind yeah. of is is the same per year at least as undergrad was for the most part. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Um, sometimes uh, a master's degree can be um, uh, a, a part-time master's degree where it allows the student mm -hmm. to work. Uh, work, you know, full time, and then maybe a lot of the graduate programs in education. So I actually have an MA in, in higher education, a Master of Arts in higher education. It took me four years to do what could be a one year degree if I had done it full time, but I did it part time mm -hmm. while working when I worked at Princeton University. And, and then actually, some of it, I left Princeton to co found Accept You, and I continued to do um, uh, full time Accept You while doing part-time master's work. So that could be another way to uh, also fund your, your education um, if, they have, if they have the opportunity for part-time. Um, they usually like for people to have some real and practical experience, if that's the case. Right, got it. That's pretty cool. I, um, I mean, I, I know that people do master's part-time, but I didn't realize it was as prominent as your suggesting so that's pretty neat it is it is uh fairly prominent i think it depends on the field of study um master mm -hmm. of social work for example or master of education those those two in fact have a lot of part-time programs and that is accommodating to the student because the classes are usually at night all of my classes were at night when i did my mm -hmm. master of arts in higher education 100 percent of my classes started at I would say six or six or later in the, in the evening. Yeah. 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 Cool. 
Yeah, that makes sense. It's basically like an executive MBA type of situation, but for different things. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not quite as profitable after you get that graduate degree <laughs> as, an e, as an EMBA. Yeah. Yeah. It just depends, I guess. I'm curious then, uh, actually, yeah, let's might as well just like, is there anything specific to executive MBA programs or other similar programs that any specific tips for that or not really? Yeah, we've, we've worked with a few as a company. We have some of our counselors in our graduate um, section at Accept You have worked in actually EMBA admissions. Uh, someone worked at Cornell's program. We have several people who have worked in graduate um, M- MBA or Master of Arts in, uh, let's say, economics and international finance. We have several of those folks who have worked in graduate admissions in, in those spaces. And there, when when we have clients at Accept You who are interested in those programs, obviously we assign them to the appropriate counselor. Um, for EMBAs, I might get this slightly wrong, but I, I believe that eight or nine years of full-time work experience is the minimum. It's a requirement. And so, um, you know, these graduate programs, yeah, they're looking for maturity. They're looking for students who are very serious, who presumably want that graduate program to advance to the next level within their organization. I imagine a lot of the executive MBA students, um, you know, they're very busy with their full-time careers. And so if I'm not mistaken, they typically go to the university for two weeks at a time for a two week uh, intensive um, uh, module, maybe in the summer and then maybe another one or two weeks throughout the year. But they they will you know meet on weekends and so forth. They have nighttime. So um, admittedly, I'm not as familiar, but I know that it's a very different um, profile from someone who's going for the MBA really very different profile. They're actually very expensive graduate degrees as well, the executive MBA. Um, and, but, but I think often the, the, the company might sponsor this student. Um, I, yeah, know, just dep- I think that's maybe why it's more expensive, right? Like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> the, whenever, whenever it's like, I, I, it out I have the a company. thing where, yeah, whenever you can put it on an expense report, like the price doubles basically. Yeah, funny how that happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because companies are uh, less cost sensitive, let's say. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's really, I did not know that the age difference was so much different with executive MBA programs. That's kind of cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, I said eight or nine or 10. I, I would imagine it's even uh, more years of work experience, mm. but I think that's the minimum. Very certain of that. Well, that's like a master of public affairs versus a master of public policy. Um, you know, that's a very common and popular degree, especially these days. And a master of public affairs, a student can go straight from undergrad to get this MPA. And that's usually someone who's focused on either social justice or international relations or public policy or yeah, public policy with regard to um, any topic, um, helping others in government and so forth. Masters of public policy usually requires or does require uh, work experience. And it's almost like an executive, meaning a master of public policy is, is typically someone, I don't know the minimum number of years requirement, but it's, it's significant. I want to say four or mm-hmm. five or six or eight, something like that. But I do know that students can go directly from undergrad to 
master of public affairs. So even, you know, even in the schools of public affairs or schools of public and international affairs, they really do have distinctions. You know, are you someone immediately coming into our graduate program or, or having maybe one year of work experience versus someone who's a mid-career professional, you know, six or eight or more years of, of experience. So, you know, I think the best advice I can give someone is to really do their homework and do their research and figure out what is the right degree. You know, if someone comes to us and, and that person is a senior in college or maybe has one year of work experience and says, oh, I want a master of public policy, we would immediately direct them away from that and say, you'll never get in. You don't, you're not a mid-career professional. Let's look at, at, at a university, a graduate program that requires zero to two years of work experience. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, so a yeah, lot of it I, is just being savvy about what's right for you. Yeah. And so there's such a big difference between the programs that basically continue college versus the programs that are meant for people that have left for a while. Without a doubt. Yeah. And the letters of recommendation will be different. The resumes will definitely be different. The um, the writing, we haven't even spoken about the letter, the personal statements, or some people call it, a, you know, some schools call it a statement of purpose and so forth. It's much more matter of fact. It's much more of your, your, your narrative, your story. It's not necessarily clever writing. Um, it, it, it should be more about why do you want this graduate degree? Why do you need it? Why this particular university or this particular program within this university? What is your short-term goal or even long-term goal when you finish the program? So that's another major difference from applying to undergraduate versus graduate is it's that focus. It's knowing who you are and knowing what you want and knowing what you want to do, perhaps what you want to do after you finish the graduate program. Right. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Um, So yeah, that is actually, that leads kind of nicely into my next question, which is, so for PhD programs, (laughs) um, are those, uh, like, I I just don't know, what is the mix of people doing a PhD kind of immediately, right? Or is it like you kind of do a master's and then you do a PhD and they're not, it's not necessarily like you're signing up for PhD right after undergrad? Or like, are there people that go and you know, for lack of a better word, like get a job and then come back? I will spell it out because it can be a bit confusing. Um, So if someone wants a PhD and he is a senior in college, can he apply directly for a PhD? The answer is yes. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that student doesn't need a master's degree to apply for a PhD. Now, if he's admitted, he might be admitted to a master's slash PhD program at that given university that that accepts him. Now, that is an option. The other reality is that student might be admitted, quote, directly to the PhD program. It just depends on the university, and it even depends on the department within the university. So when I was admitted to my PhD program, let's say, Um, When I was admitted, they said, congratulations, you've been admitted to your master's slash PhD program. And I didn't even know that or or realize it. I didn't know that there was a stepwise master's required to get a PhD. 
And the reason I'm mentioning this is someone at my university, my graduate university, who was in another department, she was at the same time admitted to a PhD program, another department, she was admitted directly to the PhD program in her department, there was no such master, uh, no such stepwise masters. So that's why there's a lot of confusion, then it gets better. Um, students sometimes maybe can go get a job, a full-time job for a year or two, and then go get a, a PhD. Of course, they can be admitted to a PhD with or without a job. If you have one, um, are you then directly admitted to the PhD program or is it a master's slash PhD program? The same rule applies. It has nothing to do with if you've worked full-time or have zero years of work experience. It's, it's just whatever that department at that university deems is appropriate for their students to go through their course of study. Um, then the, the other catch is someone might say to me, well, I want a master's degree in, let's go back to my initial comment, art history or chemistry, um, mm. but the university that I'm applying to doesn't have a master's in art history or chemistry. What can I do? Well, that student applies for a PhD but sometimes the student, for whatever reason, might leave with a master's degree, even though they don't offer a terminal degree that you can apply for. So what mm -hmm. I mean is a student, you know, goes for the Ph.D. in chemistry, but leaves with a master's in chemistry. Yeah, that sometimes happens because that program happens to have a stepwise master's degree that was awarded along the way. So after, let's say, two years of successful coursework. Um, and so forth. Maybe the student says, I don't want to be in this program for two or three more years. I, I'm done. I want to just go find a job. Happens all the time, actually. And thankfully, most students leave the graduate program with something to show for it, which is a master's degree. I've seen two students who left a university after two, yeah, two or more years. And sadly, they left with nothing to show for it. They left without any kind of graduate degree. Um, so that does happen. It's pretty rare, but I know of, of two people to whom that, that happened. Um, right. So so the point is you can actually get a master's degree in chemistry, even if on paper you couldn't apply for it. We don't want students using that as, let's say, a back channel and saying, well, I want a master's in chemistry, but XYZ University mm -hmm. doesn't offer one. I'll go for the PhD and stop after two years. I mean, technically you could do that, but that's a very risky game in case they don't um, award the master's degree to you or at all. So we tell mm -hmm. students, um, you know, if, you're, if your terminal degree that you seek right now when you're an applicant is a PhD, then you should actually apply for the PhD. They'll let you know. They'll indicate to you, ah, uh, we, we'd love to have you, but we're going to make you an MS slash PhD student because we, we think you need a couple years of, you know, master's work before admitting you to our PhD program. Or they might come to you and say, we like you, but we think you should just apply for our master's degree. And if a university says that, they're very much, it's again, that polite way of saying no. They're basically saying, you're not getting into our PhD program, but you'll get into our master's program if you are willing to change your application from a PhD to a master's. Um, right. It actually happened to me when, when I was a senior, I didn't, I wasn't savvy. I didn't know. When I was a senior in college, I applied to a university and they literally came to me and said, um, we'd like you to apply for our master's degree program instead. Does that interest you? And I said, no, I really want to go for the PhD. And then I did not get admitted. And I'm certain now that I know what I know, that if I had said yes, I would have been admitted to the master's. Then if you go to their master's and you're successful, 
then it's not guaranteed, but almost certainly you can continue on um, into their PhD program. Right. It's complex. Well, it's complex. yeah, you have to you have to like do well in the master's program, but this is their way of kind of hedging their bets, right? That's correct. Yeah, they want to test you out. They think you're a strong and good candidate, but they will give you coursework for two years and and see how you perform uh, in research and so forth. And and if not, then everyone parts ways amicably, and the student leaves with with a master's degree. So, um, right, which is definitely yeah. better than nothing. Which is better than nothing. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great tip. I that's something I I've never heard before. Um, well, yeah, yeah. So then, with all that, is there anything else that you wanted to cover today, as far as graduate school admissions tips? Yeah, I mean, the, you you started off by talking about the um, MBA or the uh, GRE and GMAT and so forth. Um, yeah, yeah, most of the most of the universities went test optional with COVID three years ago, three plus years ago, and so um, you know, admittedly, I always thought the 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 graduate record exam wasn't that useful for students if they didn't perform as well <laughs> but it was mm-hmm. very useful but it but it, it it reaffirmed let's put it that way when the students did quite well and i always want to emphasize to students if you're looking for a social sciences or humanities type graduate program then you really don't need to worry probably too much about your your quantitative section of the GRE, but we really want to see a very strong analytical writing um, piece, and we want to see a very strong verbal, and the opposite is true. If you're applying more to a STEM graduate field, then not surprisingly, the quantitative is very critical. Um, of course, they'll look at your, um, uh, your verbal section, but it's not nearly as uh, meaningful as the quantitative. The one surprise though, is even in the graduate school of engineering where I used to work, the analytical writing piece for engineering applicants was was actually regarded much more um, strongly than I think students might have assumed. So it was the hmm. math section, the quantitative section, and then the, the analytical writing. Um, you know, the a lot of these um, graduate programs, JD and MBA, now accept the GRE and not just the LSAT or the GMAT. So that's certainly a question that we um, work through with our clients is, should you take the graduate program um, uh, required standardized exams or are they optional? And if they're optional and, and you have choices, which ones do you take? Do you take a few uh, do you take it multiple times? Do you take one versus the other and compare and contrast scores? So we have a lot of strategy conversations with our students about what to do with the with the standardized exams. There's a lot of it's 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 not a black and white answer. It really isn't. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think um, this has all been really good tips. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, this has been GRE Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Steven Friedfeld from Accept You. And Achievable has a great online GRE course. You should try it for free by going to achievable.me. And if you like it, be sure to use the code podcast to get 10% off.